Hello and welcome to the Skewer Podcast. The Skewer is a live monthly news review featuring hilarious op-eds and silly debates that roast the dumb news of the month that was. This particular edition was recorded on March 7th, 2018. I do hope you enjoy it. Hello everybody. Hello Hello, buddies. Hello friends. We're going to get the Skewer, the delightful show that you're all here for, started in just a moment. But before we do that, I would like to welcome to the stage to uh, conduct a fun game, friend of the show, Kevin Johnson. Give him a round of applause. I'm a friend of the show. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing with this game? We're going to just do a simple quiz. It's like, it's like two truths and a lie, except with headlines, and so the world might end. But it's very simple, very simple game. Uh, three sets of some stories. Just tell me what's fake. If you can do that, or if you can't do that, it doesn't matter. I'm going to give you a nice skewer sticker. I've, I've done this for months on end, and no one has gone three for three. <laughs> if you do it, I'll give you my other drink ticket. It's, it's you know, basically just like well drinks and just, you know, crappy Schlitz or whatever the fuck. I don't know. Schlitz is good! My friend of the show, Tom, says it's good. So I guess I don't have an opinion anymore. Anyway. Um, I don't have an opinion, but I do need one volunteer, hopefully. Up here, up here. Clap for her. Yes. Yes. So there's a fun thing of an infinite feedback loop. If you put it in the speaker, then I'll just... That, that also works, yes. All right. What's your name? Christine. Christine. Everyone say hi, Christine. Yay, we did it. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Okay, good. All right. First story. Hackers trick the official Vatican news site into declaring that God is an onion. Could be true. Second start, German Olympic athletes are using American beer as Gatorade. <laughs> I guess it's just it's like water to them. Who cares? Third story, a Chicago TV station confuse, confuses Pyeongchang, South Korea, with P.F. Chang's restaurants. <laughs> I think that last one really did happen. <laughs> um, so German, German Gatorade, and what was the first one again? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, it's the, the Vatican News site, God is an Onion. Um, it's probably like the next Radiohead album or some shit. <laughs> I'll go with the second one. Yeah, that's, that's fake. Right. You did it. You did it. Okay. So, yeah, they actually did use beer, but it was not alcoholic, not American. I mean, it could have also been American. I don't know. All right, second set of stories. Okay. Scottish police have a 45-minute standoff with a stuffed animal. <laughs> Story two. Apple employees are reportedly walking into walls at the company's fancy new glass office. <laughs> <laughs> Story three. Sean Hannity. He thinks there's a Muslim insignia hiding in the Obama's for, uh, like presidential portrait. <laughs> you know, the one with all the nice IV and shit. Okay. 
second you say him, I forget. Okay, um. number one, Scottish police <laughs> versus the stuffed animal. Okay. Number two, office employees versus glass. Okay. Number three, Sean Hannity versus the world. <laughs> I'm going to go with the first one. <gasps> no, that's actually true. Oh. No. Shit. No, they did that. Okay. okay. That was probably a good waste of taxpayer money. Okay. <laughs> Story one. Oh, oh, shit, yeah, what was the fake one? Yeah, the Muslim insignia. Sean Hannity, he actually thinks there's a secret sperm in the painting. Which is from, like, also in some white supremacist forum. It's, it's a whole thing. But that's, that's Fox News these days. Uh, okay, first story. Sex dolls replace runway models at the Dolce & Gabbana fashion show. Did anybody notice? Ooh. Ooh. Why are you throwing shade? <laughs> okay. Second headline. World's worst police sketch actually looks like the suspect. Hmm. Story three. White House Chief of Staff jo- oh, John Kelly jokes that his job is punishment from God. <laughs> Which is true even if it's false. Um, I'll go with the middle one. The middle one. You, you really are just forgetting this. It's great. <laughs> World's worst police sketch. Uh, no, that, it was like, she almost, it was, it was, I wish I could show you it. It's very simple. Please Google it. Please Google it, because his face does look a little bit. It's so very simple. Anyway, uh, they did not replace the models with sex dolls. Uh, they replaced them with drones. <laughs> They're coming for our jobs. <laughs> Well, you, you, did a, you did a nice job there, Christine. And you're still getting a skewer sticker. You can rep the brand. You can be a friend of the show, too. Uh, speaking of friends of the show, Tom, get back on stage, because I want to leave. We did it. Yeah, I'm back on stage now. Thank you to Kevin Johnson for the fake news quiz again. Thank all you wonderful people to come for coming out to the skewer tonight. Come on, you thank yourselves. I tricked you. I told you to clap for yourselves, but I'm taking it all. Anyway, this is the skewer, a live monthly news review that uses hilarious op-eds and silly debates to satirize the news of the terrible month that just passed. Uh, <laughs> Of course, this month we are turning our eyes on February 2018, which was a banner month for people who are constantly wrong and had and never have a good idea. <laughs> to be fair, this is true for literally every month that I've been alive, and arguably America's defining characteristic. But this February really was a, a true murderer's row of the most powerful people in the world gleefully committing parades of unforced errors, just voluntarily showing everyone that they're too dumb to put on their diapies without an intern doing it for them. We all know the king of this, of this trope, this phenomenon, our vicious ape dad, Donald Trump. We, of course, remember his response to the school shooting in Parkland, Florida, where he suggested having armed teachers to murder mass shooters in the act, which is dumb on its face, but even more so when later in February, an, an armed teacher shot up a high school. <laughs> to which gun fetishists responded that actually armed teachers are still good. 
because then a second teacher could have killed the first guy. Which, and I, I think you're getting it, uh, is 100%, makes sense. It makes complete sense to me. It's a great idea. To me, it is good when gunfights between ultimate warriors can break out literally anywhere. It's like that movie John Wick. Y'all saw John Wick? You like John Wick? It's like how in John Wick, it's like how in John Wick, every place John Wick is immediately becomes super comfortable to also be in. You know it. But my real favorite thing that Trump did this month was when he inexplicably said that he actually Mondo supports taking away people's guns. <laughs> it just kills me how he does this. Every few months, he's too stupid to know how to be evil, right? And just stumbles ass backwards into a good idea, but no one reacts, no one is shocked, because we just all know that the bad guy from RoboCop's gonna get him in a room and explain <laughs> that that's not actually what you think, Donald. <laughs> but we all know our leaders are constantly wrong. That's not news, that's not surprising. Perhaps more worrying is how absolutely dumb and wrong our media, the ostensible fourth estate, was last month. And so consistently, too. Hardly anyone covered what might end up being one of the defining stories of the year, the massive fucking wildcat strike of teachers in West Virginia. There you go. Come on. Labor rights. We hardly ever see huge organized collection or uh, organized collected action for workers' rights anymore. And if it's going on, they certainly don't fucking show us. So it was absolutely incredible to see this. And here's the thing: it fucking worked. They yesterday, West Virginia voted to give them a fucking five percent raise. And teachers in Oklahoma are gonna go on strike there on April second. It's it's happening. It's continuing. Any liberal publication should be shouting at the top of their voices that this kind of mass action is crucial and precious in the fight against wealth inequality, a fight, mind you, which should be the fucking top priority of anything putting on a liberal face. Instead, they report that Trump had sex with porn stars. <laughs> a fact so obvious and unimportant <laughs> that reporting on it is like telling me that the sun is somewhere. <laughs> but what really stings me this month is how the power, uh, this month about how powerful people who control the world are all extremely stupid is the state of our nation's op-eds. Now, as the host of a, and producer of a show that is mostly op-eds, this is important to me. Hearing intelligent people share unique takes on interesting issues is the best shit. I love it. In a world where the th way things are is so miserable, we need to hear and have people show us how they could be. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I didn't even tell a joke. Give me the poetry reading claps. Um, at this show, people with like fucking full-time jobs and three side gigs bang out essays in their spare time for a cut of the door cash. Speaking of which, please donate at the door. And they turn out transcendent shit that I love so much. You would expect and hope, then, that our nation's professional op-ed writers, with essentially unlimited time and massive salaries, would do that much better. 
Instead, it seems that they are only capable of writing why it should be illegal to be mean to people who write op-eds. <laughs> <laughs> to borrow a page from Kevin's fake news quiz, here are some things that American publications printed in their op-ed sections last month. There are eight. One of them is fake. See if you can spot it. Number one. A New York Times contributor said that it was mean to ostracize Woody Allen because at worst, he only sexually assaulted a child once. <laughs> Number two, a New York Times contributor said that we should ban porn because it makes the youth too sexually aggressive. Number three, a New York Magazine contributor said that the same youth that the previous guy said was too sexually aggressive is taking the Me Too movement of punishing sexual aggressors too far. <laughs> Number four, that same New York, Time con New York Magazine contributor from the last one said that left-wing students on campus who don't want Nazis to be around are as big a threat to American ideals as white nationalists. Number five. A New York Times contributor said that older women should not wear yoga pants. That, that's not in service to a larger point. That was, that's the whole thing. Number six, an Atlantic contributor wrote that Twitter users criticizing a New York Times contributor's racist tweets shows that left-wing outrage culture is chipping away at democracy. Number seven, a New York Times contributor wrote that people criticizing a colleague's classist tweets was insane and fascistic. And number eight, a Politico contributor wrote that immigration wouldn't be so bad if you could force an immigrant to spend years living in your home and working for you personally for sub-minimum wage. He doesn't say that you would own them because that's slavery and that's illegal. <laughs> but the headline does reference being able to, quote, get your own immigrant. <laughs> Can anyone guess which one was fake? There's eight, so I know it's hard to keep them in their head. You, sir, who I don't know and is not my dad. Guessing You're guessing one, the one about Woody Allen? No, that's true, it's very real. It was Brett Stevens. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone got any guesses? Seven. Seven? The one about uh, uh, insane and fascistic? Yep. That's kind of on the line because that wasn't an op-ed. That was a tweet also by Brett Stevens. Uh, <laughs> but all of his colleagues came to his defense and agreed with him. Uh, actually, here's the answer. I tricked you. They're all real as shit. <laughs> I, it was a ruse. <laughs> here's the fun thing. The authors of these pieces are always this stupid. <laughs> and they have been hyper-employed by major publications for decades. Where they earn salaries I'll never match in my life. The guy who wrote about making immigrants your slaves is Eric Posner, a law professor at the University of Chicago right now. Yeah, if you or anyone you know goes to UFC, you've paid his salary. The editors defend themselves by saying that it's good when people get mad at the ideas in their pages because diverse ideas should shock you. 
And I agree <laughs> when the diverse ideas are well-reasoned and in good faith and not just like, how dare the slavering plebes call me racist. I've seen Hamilton. The... <laughs> you know, the black people show that invented rap. The thing about Hamilton is, like, it sucks that I think it's great. Like, I honestly <laughs> love it. Because, like, it's so fun to dunk on it. Anyway. <laughs> James Bennett, the editor of the New York Times op-ed section, defended his exclusion of any socialist viewpoints because, quote, the New York Times is in favor of capitalism because it has been the greatest engine of... It's been the greatest anti-poverty program and engine of progress that we've seen. Yeah, I wish that wasn't a direct quote. I wish that was me making him look worse for a joke. I mean, like, engine of progress, I'm like, yeah, okay, fair, I'll give you that. But, like, anti-poverty program? The fucking audacity on this boy. But the true shit jewel on the ass crown of this month is when the New York Times hired Quinn Norton, a technology writer who repeatedly used racial and homophobic slurs and is a self-proclaimed good friend of notorious actual Nazi Andrew Ornheimer. I'm not using Nazi in like the SJW lib way where it's someone who doesn't have my opinions. I mean, he's called for the fucking extermination of the Jewish people. Um, <laughs> which was then fo followed by Quinn Norton's immediate firing when people pointed that bullshit out. Norton, of course, then immediately turned around and got an op-ed published in The Atlantic, where she explained, as they all do, how criticizing her is mean and a threat to democracy, and no one is allowed to do it. <laughs> how it's fine and harmless to use slurs because they're just fun internet slang and that, it's, and that as a pacifist you are actually required to be friends with Nazis so that you can change their minds which is the dumbest <laughs> shit I've ever heard <laughs> like the way you fight Nazis is to defend their targets and make the social cost of being a Nazi impossible to pay being a Nazi's fun, normie friend is literally the most enabling thing you can do other than also becoming a Nazi. <laughs> Give me some of these. Give me some of these, clap, these snappies. Yeah, I'm saying the lib things you already think. <laughs> There's a reason. There's a reason that you feel this instinctive wave of contempt when you hear the phrase Nazi sympathizer, and it's not because actually it's a good thing all liberals should do. Yeah. Friends, if I got an op-ed in the Atlantic, I would cry. It would be the highlight of my year. I would get it framed. I, it would feel like my years of work had paid off. I would make a promise to myself to stay at this level and get better and work harder every day. But I'm not constantly wrong. <laughs> so I will never get one. <laughs> Quinn Norton is a huge idiot who's always wrong. So she got to spend 15 minutes rubbing a framed photo of her Nazi buddy on her laptop and then 
fucking Atlantic published the result on the front page of their website. <laughs> we can only hope that the tide turns. And if the teens from Parkland, with their media savvy and relentless push for justice and thirst to dunk on fools constantly, <laughs> if that's any indication, it might. The elections are coming. But until then, there is still power and money in being wrong. And we're suckers for not embracing it. Imagine where I would be if I, too, were wrong. Thank you. We got a delightful show for you tonight. We got some great folks. We got some delightful op-eds. Uh, two more rounds of Kevin's fake news quiz and a hilarious debate. But before we get to that, I would like to welcome to the stage co-producer of the show, writer, and generally delightful person, Erica Dreisbach, to give a voicemail op-ed. Hi, everybody. Voicemail op-eds are where I call, or Tom calls, a real, actual person and leaves a hot take on their voicemail. Who are you calling today, Eric? I'm calling Senator Dick Durbin. Oh, my goodness. He's in my phone under Dick. By the way, if you don't have your members of Congress in your phone right now, you ain't real. Yeah. Take <laughs> back easy. all your poetry reading snaps. Okay. I'm calling. So, uh, so, uh, how have you been, Erica? Calling, calling Dick Durbin. How long does it generally take to get to his uh, voicemail? Oh, man, I always forget. Now, I thought the point was that you were going to kill time. Yeah, I was going to, but then I forgot what I was going to say, so now I'm just kind of, like, flailing. Well, you could tell them about our merch, our merchandise. Oh, we got some dope merch. We got those stickers we give to our uh, participants in the news quiz. You also got amazing fucking buttons that you can put on your things and be a punk rock person and also have a skewer button. Also, we have a delightful book, The Skewer Best of 2016. You remember 2016, the year that sounded, that felt like hell at the time, but now is this beautiful memory? You can relive it for naught but 15 bucks. Still, still ringing, huh? Still ringing. I was rushing because I didn't want to step on it. We might not be able to get through to Dick tonight. There was going to be a lot of calling him Dick in tonight's oh. op-ed, too. All right, uh, we might have to cancel it this month. I mean, can you, can you read what you would have said so that we can, like, vicariously, like, yeah. um, dunk on Dick? Oh, finally got a message. Please leave it. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Hi, this is your constituent, Erica Dreisbach, from zip code 60618 in Chicago. I'm calling to thank the senator for keeping up the good fight for DACA and DREAMers and to push the senator to, senator to minority whip some science into our gun control, namely, number one, Repeal the Dickey Amendment, which keeps the CDC from researching gun violence. And number two, introduce a law to let the ATF keep computer records. Did you see that article in GQ? Find it on Google. you got to Google it. It's 2018, and the ATF has to keep gun records on paper because of the NRA, which is literally barbaric. Thank you for all your work. I love you, Dick. Bye-bye. Thank you, Erica! If you were looking up at that and being like, that looked easy, well, guess what? Now you've tricked yourself. You have to do it later yourself, <laughs> but not a voicemail. Call him for real. Anyway, 
On to the op-ed portion of our night. Well, you will hear, hear better op-eds than you hear, than you hear in the New York Times. I swear I know how to speak words. <laughs> our first op-ed writer of the evening is Benham Riahi, a writer and blogger. He has edited books from Matt Rowan, Joseph Peterson, and Ben Tanzer, and worked with Chicago Center for Literature and Photography, The Criminal Class Review, Windy City Story Slam, and Reading Under the Influence. He blogs at medium.com slash American Other. Please welcome Benham Riahi! <laughs> Perfect height. Can we give another round of applause for Tom? Because he's badass. Also, I'm going to ask Adam to take some photos of me because somebody asked me to earlier. Get some photos of you, blah, blah, blah. And just don't look at my other photos, please. Please don't. Uh, so I'm short, so if you have to stand up, by all means, because... Uh, I see a lot of you are really far away. I understand. I'm tiny. I'm a very small man. That's okay. <laughs> and I'm going to be ripping into some white people a little bit. I don't want you guys to take offense. I love white people, even though you colonized my homeland. And eventually it led to the overthrow, which created an Islamic republic. I think that you guys are great. You did so many cool things. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to be talking about shootings and massacres a lot, and I assure you that I'm not armed. If you feel threatened, please do not tackle me. I just got a tattoo last night, and I'm really, really sore still. In fact, if at any point I start bleeding through my shirt or my sweater, do not be alarmed. I'm just very tender and delicate, but it's a cool dragon, so it's totally worth it. Uh, so let's go back to the past. On Valentine's Day, Nicholas Cruz walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. I assume they call it MSD High School? I don't know. With an assault rifle and killed 17 people while injuring 16 others. A combination of students and faculty because we know those that commit massacres never discriminate. According to authorities, he had an unreasonable amount of ammunition on him and he tried to sneak away undetected, much like the strategy that 12-year-olds use when playing Call of Duty. <laughs> Cruz had been expelled from Parkland for starting a fight earlier. He was 19 years old and obviously he hated high school as much as I did and everyone else who has never held a football in their life. <laughs> Here are some of my favorite headlines of the shooting. We failed him, retired exceptional student education specialist says of Parkland Shooter. Parkland shooting suspect on suicide watch in jail. Sheriff's office says no known ties between Parkland shooting suspect and white supremacists. Attorney says Parkland shooting suspect is just a broken human being. So many warning signs. Parkland shooting suspect, a troubled outcast whose parents died. <laughs> Florida sh school shooting suspect was investigated by the state after self-harming. Boy. Florida shooting suspect, guns, depression, and a life in trouble. To longtime friend, sh school shooter Nicholas Cruz was lonely, volatile, and ostracized. Florida school shooter Nicholas Cruz says demon voices told him to do it. Nicholas Cruz is a broken child who's sorry about the shooting. Florida shooting suspect? Friend says no one to cope with. Was the shooting suspect mentally ill? 
inside the disturbed mind of the shooting suspect. God, after all that, even I feel bad for the kid. Poor little bastard. He was troubled and depressed and just needed a hug. Well, you know what? Me too! <laughs> so here's some background. I'm an Iranian, Middle Eastern. A uh, little bit of Muslim, but not really because I like to drink and I tend to encourage premarital sex as often as possible. Allah is great, but is anything really better than Cthulhu? If you answered yes, you're a liar and I don't want to be your friend anymore. Anyway, back in high school, I could only be considered a goth. You know, we had to wear navy sweaters and dress shirts with ties. It's kind of like how I'm dressed now. But I like to paint my nails. I wore jelly bracelets, the ones that they say if you broke, somebody wanted to do something explicit with you. Didn't really happen to me unless you count my cat. Her name was Boo Boo. She was an adorable calico. Uh, I even wore eyeliner, and I actually put some on tonight, just for the show. You're welcome. <laughs> and I dyed my hair all kinds of crazy colors back then, like blonde and red and aqua, because why the hell not? Um, big surprise, I was called a freak, a weirdo, and a loser. I was voted most likely to commit a Columbine-style massacre by my peers on the wrestling team. Didn't really actually make the wrestling team though, so I don't know why they're voting on that. <laughs> In fact, they went out of their way to kick my ass on a regular basis. Didn't succeed, I'm kind of a badass. Learned all my moves from Street Fighter, Hadouken. Um, I was in the school musical though, so. Last but not least, I was also frequently called a terrorist. Here's a little bit more about me. Maybe I dressed like a freak, a weirdo, and a loser, but I was totally depressed. But I was never violent. I was just a poor kid who felt like he never fit in and just wanted to express his own individuality in his own personal style. Let it be known, I've never held a gun, let alone shot one, outside of when I played Duck Hunt on the NES at my grandpa's house. I never wrote fantasy stories about killing my classmates or getting justice or anything like that unless you're talking about elves and shit because elves deserve justice. <laughs> but I did love Marilyn Manson or Nine Inch Nails and various industrial rock bands with lonely messaging. I played violent video games including ones where you shoot people like Halo and Metal Gear Solid and even those RPG games where you're trying to date other non-player characters. By the way, even in those games, I was frequently rejected. I played Dungeons and Dungeons. I played Dungeons and Dragons for six hours a day, three days a week, and I still have all my days. This guy right here, yes, yes. Roll him, roll him, boom. Drop him on the table. That's right. Going for the critical hit. Uh, I still keep my dice, just in case somebody calls me out of retirement because they want to kill some goblins. So I'm ready. Let's do this. Um, but I'm not really surprised that I was found threatening. Uh, if, in fact, if I met the high school version of me today, I'd probably be like, yo, bro, stop spending money on anime. Maybe save up for that car that you're never going to have. <laughs> and after all, it was just after 9-11, by the way. I know I look like I'm in my 20s because I moisturize every day. I'm actually in my 30s. Um... <laughs> It was just after 9-11, and I was the only Middle Eastern school in my high school. 
Middle Eastern kid in my high school, I'm sorry. So why wouldn't my classmates be a little scared? They were just kids. And uh, stupid, privileged high schoolers with trust funds and early onset alcoholism are gonna do stupid things, so. I spent a lot of years asking myself, what really makes a terrorist? In my opinion, it's all about your affiliations. Do you associate with a hate group or a collective that might encourage the killing of multiple strangers? If, if you do, answer yes, and we can talk about this later. <laughs> do you talk about killing random people as a way of sending a message, like maybe capitalism sucks? It does. <laughs> or maybe your religion is bullshit? It probably is. <laughs> Does your hate group like to train you in tasks that seem otherwise useless, like flying airplanes or installing bump stocks? <laughs> Do they have wall hangs or flags celebrating other hate groups? For instance, maybe there's a Genghis Khan era Mongolian tapestry? <laughs> or a poster celebrating modern humans wiping out those Neanderthals? Yeah, me too. Or maybe those other two that emphasize the eradicate, eradication of entire peoples. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we're talking about Old Dixie and the Swastika. If you didn't guess that, I'm totally disappointed. Um, or maybe your group just likes talking about wiping out other peoples. Say, for instance, in large gatherings in the forest where everyone wears white cloaks or burns effigies. Or maybe your groups just like to talk about it on 4chan. If you're on 4chan also, we'll talk about it. <laughs> Do the people in your hate group like to use the phrase slippery slope, unironically? <laughs> God. <laughs> or emphasize free speech rights while condemning, condemning the liberal media? If so, you might be a redneck. I mean a terrorist. <laughs> You know who else was called a terrorist? Uh, that guy who shot up that Orlando nightclub two years ago. He descended from like an Afghanistani background and he uh, identified as ISIS on social media. Even though he had never actually been in contact with members of ISIS and he wasn't like part of a cell or anything. The truth was that he was a closeted homosexual who wanted to bump off some other gays to prove how straight he was. He felt shamed by society and his religion so he committed an atrocity that could only be considered an act of terror by the American population because he meant to teach Saul how bad it was to be gay. Honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't make this dude a terrorist. He was just a jerk, like a real big fucking jerk. He wanted to necessitate change through violence, supposing that we adhere to a belief system that he had. But in some ways, his corrupted perspective on what we should or shouldn't accept molded by American and Islamic ideologies betrayed him. It was misinterpreted and used as a premise to cause harm. But neither Islam or America are wrong. This guy, Omar, he was. Sometimes terrorism is celebrated too, like the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars, or Guy Fox, which we later interpreted as V for Vendetta. <laughs> Or hacktivist groups like Anonymous, which could also be interpreted as Guy Fox or V for Vendetta for some reason. <laughs> because of a stupid mask, I guess. Uh, or that movie Fight Club. 
these are all ideologies that seem so much more noble, but we don't consider them terrorism. Even though these stories are about actions backed by ideologies that, we, that will claim innocent people, I've said that I would kill somebody for a fish taco in the past. What does that make me? <laughs> Nicholas Cruz, that kid who shot up Parkland, he was a disturbed, stupid kid. Also, he was too old to be hanging around high school. He was 19, for fuck's sake. Uh, so if you're looking for red flags. <laughs> On social media, he declared hatred for specific groups, like blacks and Muslims. Some debate that he had ties to white supremacist groups. I assume he hated women because he picked Valentine's Day to shoot up the school on his stupid little rampage. But the media has refrained from calling him a terrorist. Me personally, I don't think he was a terrorist either. Even if he did have ties to hate groups, he wasn't exactly a dupe-paying member to any of them, except for the NRA. Uh, to our knowledge, he didn't march at Charlottesville or take part in a white supremacist ritual by burning crosses or effigies or watching Tim Allen stand-up specials. <laughs> he was just a dumb kid who hated everyone and meant to cause as much harm as possible. I don't have ties to any strange groups unless you include Planet Fitness, because I gotta get my <laughs> yoga on at least once a month. I've never taken part in a hate ritual unless you wanna sit down with me and talk about The Bachelor, because I don't really understand why that's still a show and people still love it. If you like it, that's fine. I'm sorry. You know what? I'm not here to discredit you. I don't know you, but fuck The Bachelor. So. <laughs> Nor have I really marched because I hate somebody, though I don't really have any love for Rahm Emanuel or other politicians, as you might have guessed already. Um, and the only time that I ever thought Tim Allen was any good was in Toy Story. So I can't criticize his entire career, although spotty it is. Wilson, my ass. That's from, that's from that home improvement. All right, sorry. <laughs> Honestly, even in my 30s, I'm still just a dumb, disturbed kid. So why would anybody call me a terrorist? Maybe it's just the eyeliner. Thanks. One more time for Ben and Riahi, everybody. I just want to say, Tim Allen's best performance, clearly Galaxy Quest. I agree with you in theory, but Galaxy Quest don't. Uh, our second op-ed reader of the evening is Adam Homer Lawson, the author of the book Animals on Buses and winner of the Chicago Reader's 2017 Best Nonfiction Writer, Adam Homer Lawson. Get on stage! So fucking happy to be here, thank you. The Columbine massacre occurred when I was in fifth grade. The day after my school held an assembly where our principal signaled myself and my best friend Justin Smith out for being the target of bullying. She assured us that we were loved and that if we were bullied anymore, there would be stern consequences for our offenders. <laughs> Exactly. What a fucking idiot. So there, in our packed assembly, which for the record was a fucking church, 
I went to a Catholic school, and if you think that public school funding is scanty, then go to a Catholic school on the south side. <laughs> there, in front of the entirety of our school, girls we had crushes on, stained glass angels, teachers that didn't know we were fucking dorks. <laughs> we had the special assurance from the principal that no harm <laughs> will come to us. <laughs> this fucking, this fucking doctrine, right? This, uh, where the fuck was I? I did too much crowd hamming. This too much, <laughs> this fucking doctrine made us even bigger, more delectable targets. Like plump, steaming, juicy ribeyes. And our bullies were salivating feral jackals who snarled and grinned menacingly, erect with the idea of the next time they get to steal our Pokemon cards and smash our heads together. My first kiss was with Justin Smith after one of our main bullies, Kenneth Austin, uh, smashed our heads together, our lips touched. <laughs> our lips touched and Justin's big chap lips Fucking, and I'll never forget his shrapnel-like jagged skin. He <laughs> fucking touched lips. Kiss Justin, first kiss. Justin, Justin, Justin Smith identifies as gay now, and he lives in a housing commune with other queer people in Southern Illinois. And every time we talked, I demand he thank me <laughs> for opening his eyes. <laughs> Fellas. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> That's dumb. Uh, my principal did this completely misguided but well enough intentioned gesture to put Justin and I at ease. But it also felt like a desperate plea to keep us from going postal, strapping up and riddling the place with bullet holes. My principal might have been afraid that the two shrimpy, bespectacled kissing boys were somehow going to concoct a plan post-heated lovemaking to arm ourselves and turn our rifles to our Southside Catholic school and turn this shit into a fucking tragic media circus and subsequent expose on 60 Minutes. But Justin and I didn't want to kill our bullies. In fact... We were often the starters of the shit. Kenneth Austin couldn't read. And Rashad Evans, another one of our bullies, had a keloid from a botched ear-piercing endeavor that left, that looked like someone fucking stuck gum behind his ear. And we call him Gummy. We had it coming. Furthermore, Justin and I immaturely thought that Columbine was a little funny. Uh, the idea that two dorks... This is sad. I don't know why I read this. Should have edited this out. <laughs> Fuck it. Uh, furthermore, Justin and I immaturely thought that Columbine was a little funny. The idea that two jerks who having enough wedgies and ridicule would arm themselves with Walmart assault rifles... There were no Walmarts on the south side in the 90s, so this made the startling whiteness of the incident all the more prevalent. An exact revenge on the perpetrators of their discontent. We thought it was funny how the deaths 
The 13 innocents and the two terrorists themselves were blamed on Marilyn Manson and Doom. As if media was the catalyst to all violent behavior. As if Vlad the Impaler was inspired to shish kebab fucking children on pikes because he was playing Duke Nukem while listening to Slipknot. <laughs> no one ever blamed the parents, which I guess is a fucking black thing, right? Because my parents wouldn't let me fucking leave the house with Mitch Max socks, let alone, a, let alone a fucking duffel bag full of fucking rifles. Who the fuck is watching you guys? Tom, I know your dad's here. What the fuck happened? <laughs> LOL, crowd work. <laughs> Columbine was 18 years ago, and a lot has changed. Kenneth Austin drives a bus. Rashad Evans fell off the face of the earth. Justin got a degree in acting and has appeared in several productions for the Macomb Playhouse. So if you're ever in Macomb, Illinois, go see my first kiss, Justin. It's fucking big chap lips, that son of a bitch. I've since had follow-up kisses, boys. Uh, <laughs> written a book and became a teacher. 12th grade, African-American lit, Johnson College prep, go Pumas. Woo! Pumas fans. But one thing that hasn't changed is the completely barbaric and ever-inflating death toll of children in school shootings, which no one has offered up proper preventative measures or recourse for. We stopped blaming Marilyn Manson, and now we blame the internet and medication and the price of freedom. In light of the Parkland massacre that claimed 17 lives, which I found, much to my chagrin, isn't the most recent fucking school shooting. The most recent happened at Central Michigan uh, University, where freshman Eric Davis shot and killed his mother and father who were visiting him on campus, which I've been fucking mulling over for the last three days trying to make that shit funny. I came up with, I, I fucking, all I got was, I got some hacky, Eric Davis suffered from the classic freshman 15, years to life. Yo, shut, that's not fucking funny. That's not fucking funny. To the downright, completely unfunny, fraternity pledges are getting out of hand. Killed his parents, and you guys are laughing at that. But the truth is, there's nothing funny about a college freshman killing his parents. It's horrific and haunting, and at first I wanted to know his rationale, but then I realized I couldn't quell the feeling of wanting to beat this fucking kid's head in on a daily basis, right? In light of the Parkland massacre that claimed 17 lives, Trump, in all of his drunken uncle wisdom, suggested that something I'd never even fathomed before happened, that America begins the systematic training and arming of teachers. <laughs> Because who better to kill students than the ones who teach them? This idea, is idiotic as a blobfish on ketamine, is comedy gold. Teacher supply stores would have a different, new, whole new, robust section in their aisles. The ability, oh, this is, all right, this is gonna be fucking telling. I might fucking hate you guys after this one, you ready? Teacher supply stores would have a whole new robust section in their aisles. The ability to carry a gun would attract more black male teachers. Don't you fucking laugh. Don't you fucking laugh. Good. That's a good audience. Don't you fucking say a goddamn word. 
<laughs> That's good. If I carried a gun in class, it would make me target number one. An assailant would be aware that teachers were strapped and they'd aim to dispatch me first, which is fine. If a grim choice had to be made, I suppose I'd sacrifice myself for one of my students, and I honestly would. But the choice, that choice, would be greatly hinged on what period the terrorists would attack. Fifth through sixth, totally. Entering a fucking wider, fucking okay corral shootout for those kids. Love them. Third period, fucking have them, dude. I don't give a fuck. Fuck up. I don't care. <laughs> fucking, I don't give a fuck about that. In a sea of solutions, arming teachers is the most shallow fucking remedial solution you could think of. And the fact that, the, that an elected official of the highest fucking electoral official capabilities spewed out this fucking literal, is, spewed out this shit is literally horrifying. If someone, if something is killing people at an exorbitant rate, you don't demand more of the killing factor. If lions roam the streets eating children and someone said, the solution is to set tigers free to fight the lions and clean the streets. You think that person's, oh, you go, oh, that person's an idiot. He's dumb, he's a fucking buffoon. Let's agree to do the opposite of what that asshole said, right? He's a fucking dumbass, again. But no, when the Cheeto-in-Chief said armed teachers, it made fucking headlines. CNN, Fox News, Alex Jones, credible sources. <laughs> lauded this idea and gave it merit, and that's the most fucking disturbing part, right? On the south side, metal detectors sit in the entranceways of schools like fucking morose doormats. Burly security guards slowly wand female student bodies. Students are policed like in penitentiaries. It's stifling and sometimes hostile, but there are fewer school shootings. I work at a school in Inglewood, an area characterized by gun violence and poverty, and I come to work in this climate of violence, and I never necessarily feel threatened or unsafe in my school. In my school, it didn't have metal detectors or security guards. I feel for the victims of these massacres, and I refuse to call them tragedies because a tragedy is defined as a serious accident or a natural catastrophe. These murders are intentional and unnatural, and the sick fucks that perpetrate them are bastards of minimal fucking worth. I feel for everyone who has lost someone to people so wicked and fucking weak, and I so desperately wish that I had anything other than condolences and one-liners and prayers. Something needs to be done, and honestly, I'm not sure what it is. And as a teacher, nothing stings more than not having an answer that could change a life. Thank you. Keep it going for Adam Hummer Lawson. Thank you so much, that was fantastic. With regard to my dad and how I turned out, I'm, I'm the youngest of five, and my siblings are, in order, investment banker, lawyer, doctor, neuroscientist. So like four out of five. What, what an average. <laughs> um, before we move on to our third op-ed writer, I'd like to call back to the stage Kevin Johnson for the second round of the Fake News Quiz. 
I like how this mic has like a fucking gangster lane. What is this shit? Ooh. Interesting. Ooh. Okay. I need another volunteer. Someone. Austin. Damn. What's hey, your name? I am Devin. Okay, let's go. Cool. <laughs> I just, I just, it's just uh, it's nice to know, I guess. You know. Uh, All right. I hope you're right. What? Yes, we uh, rhyme, Kevin yeah, and Devin. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you, Tom. <laughs> Nobody's this, ever pointed that out before. Yeah, this is, this is what his, his father has raised him to do. <laughs> anyway, story one. Oh, boy. Headline reads, Why do some Chinese funerals involve strippers? Is that true? I don't know. Storyline two. Suburban mom takes down drug ring. She says killed her son. That sounds like a taken, <laughs> taken shit. I love that. Story three. Thanks to a flash mob, a carnival cruise became an actual carnival with games, clowns, and a finale parade. Oh Doesn't boy. that sound just fucking <laughs> mythical and shit? It sounds better than a cruise. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's but it's a carnival on a cruise. Yeah. Anyway, which do you believe is the fake one? Oh boy. Uh, I'm gonna go with the, the first one. Why uh, do Chinese funerals involve strippers? No, they're, uh, they actually they have actually strippers. They are strippers at Chinese funerals. Yeah, it's a thing. Because like, the more people you have, I guess like, you're, you're just seen oh, as cooler. Yeah. So why not so have strippers at your funeral? That's, I don't know, whatever. So the actual fake one is the, the uh, carnival one. Um, there was actually, uh, actually all hell broke loose. Uh, this included days long fights, a video uh, with the crew member kicking a guest on the floor, uh, but passengers did get a 25% credit, so. Oh, so they can have it all happen again. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, you know. All right, second set of stories. Sales for Oscars award shaped dildos surge over the weekend prior to the ceremony. Mm. Story two. Norway's Olympic team bought 15,000 eggs due to a Google translation mistake. I don't know how the fuck that happens. Story three, despite Parkland's oppositions, Florida House panel votes to arm the teachers. Is that true? (laughs) You want none of those to be true. Yeah, yeah. I I actually, I feel like it... The, the Norwegian one, like, it, it was actually 15,000, you know, something other than eggs. I, you know, like, I think that there's a, I know there's a twist in each one. Do you one, think so I would do that to you? I, I that's how Change this it works. to be something that's yeah. not eggs? <laughs> would I do that to you? Uh, I know it's not personal. Uh, I'll, I'll go with that one, yeah. No, they bought they bought a whole bunch no. of fucking eggs. No, that that totally fucking happened. <laughs> uh, they they are also arming the teachers and yeah. fucking. Parkland. Yeah, I figured that was. Um, true. The the first one is not true though. Uh, the there is not an Oscar award shaped dildo. It is actually uh, made to resemble uh, the penis from the creature uh, from the, the shape, shape of water. water. Yeah. Um, also, I, I found this on on the internet while I was looking that up. Uh, there's also a vibrator that after your climax will order pizza for you. <laughs> I think it's, it's called the Rub Grub. <laughs> Just in case you want to Google that. I don't fucking know. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't. I'll believe you. Okay, whatever. Anyway. Alright. Third set of stories. Uh, a male escort ex- exposes 36 priests in a file sent to the Vatican containing explicit WhatsApp chats and erotic photos. 
That's pretty crazy, right? Only 36? Yeah. Fair. It's, this is the Vatican, though. I think it's smaller. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, fuck. All right, second headline. A Girl Scout is in trouble after handing out 300 boxes of cookies and samples of weed outside of a medical dispensary. <gasps> Story three. Suspect caught on video hiding crack cocaine in the ceiling at a police headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see that happening. I'll, uh, uh, no, I'll, I'll stick with my first uh, guess, actually. I think the first one, it's, it's probably more than 36, or maybe that's the wow. answer that... Uh, I feel like I should be I should be so much more technical with you in the future. <laughs> no, it is only thirty six. Oh, but I mean, it's one dude <laughs> with thirty six priests in the Vatican. So I don't I don't fucking exactly. know. Exactly, it's that. a small community. He's probably the only escort. Yeah, that's kind of miles. Yeah. It's like it's a mom and pop shop. You know, just, <laughs> um, no, the, the incorrect story is the Girl Scout. She was outside. Of a medical dispensary, but she did not touch the devil's lettuce. <laughs> um, so there you go. Hey, I so got you, done. Just, you, you get a nice sticker. That's good. That's good. <laughs> if you're wondering about my outfit, it's a Nigerian designer, Wakanda Forever. I need you to know. Then you get to Kevin Johnson. Come on. Continuing right along with our op-eds this evening, our third writer is a writer, storyteller, and podcaster who contributes at HOMAG, uh, appeared in Gaper's Block, Book Riot, and Dose, among others, has performed in countless live lit shows across the city, and is the co-host of the podcast XX Will Travel, a show geared towards independent women travelers. Please welcome Inez Bellina. The Oscars are usually a misguided, bloated, out-of-touch demonstration of excess and self-importance, and I love every single second of the never-ending ceremony. There are years where the myopic Academy will make terrible choices in their Best Picture nominations. This year, however, did not include any crash-type wreckage. You had the lush... <laughs> Still works, yeah. <laughs> you had the luscious beauty of Call Me By Your Name, the divisive but exquisitely acted three billboards. To keep all our dads comfortable, they stuffed two World War II films and threw one in with Meryl Streep. Not a single person in the world has seen the Phantom Thread, but that only made it more alluring. And of course, there were the three movies battling over my very contested heart, Get Out, Lady Bird, and The Shape of Water. On Sunday, I fulfilled every Republican's worst nightmare because I was only rooting for minorities and white women at the Oscars, regardless of any white man's talent or genius. I was all about voting with my vagina, sticking with my own, and being a snowflake ally. And all three of those movies received my unequivocal cheers as the night went on. And after Bonnie and Clyde announced a winner without fucking up, I tipped my hat to the shape of water and was set on forgetting the whole lot until next year's crop. And that was the plan, until I saw the reactions rolling in on social media. Now, to be fair, most people weren't mad per se. The majority agreed that the love story between a mute woman and a sea monster in Cold War Baltimore, who must find a way to save the creature from a hostile government agent, was lovely, expertly directed, and entertaining enough. But vast swaths of the internet were in the midst of a collective shrug. 
The words safe choice kept making the rounds, a phrase I never thought would be attributed to a movie where a woman has sex with a fish. <laughs> Beautiful fairy tale with no depth, said one friend who shall remain anonymous. It didn't push the movie genre forward, said an internet stranger who shall too remain an anonymous because I have no idea who they are. <laughs> but what I kept seeing over and over was a variation of the following. I wanted a movie that dealt with real issues to win and not some fantasy romance set in the past that involves aquapine. And this particular hot take made my blood boil to the point where I didn't even engage with internet infighting. Instead, I kept it pent up until today where I have an audience hostage to my every word. All those liberal art degrees and critical theory at Oberlin that our generation received seem to have been for naught. For it is precisely because of the aquapine that this movie deserves its best picture win. In fact, the whole allegory of the aquapine is so over-the-top obvious, I'm legit surprised I have to break it down. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm pretty used to explaining Latin American shit to the other, so I'm prepared to die on this hill. And yes, it is Latin American shit, a detail that I believe many have forgotten. The aquapine is clearly identified as Latino peen, making it an intersectional metaphorical peen. <laughs> now, when the sea monster is first dragged into the lab by high security military personnel, it's explained that he has been captured in the depths of the Amazonian jungle, where only primitive people live. If you remember your Creative Writing 101 class, no detail in your narrative should be extraneous, and I doubt Del Toro considered this a throwaway line. This is a Latin American creature who is being abused by the United States for the utility its body can provide. At the same time, it's seen by the government as a potential threat to the US, and the plan is to discard it as soon as its corporal assets are extracted. My oh my, where may have we seen this type of rhetoric before? <laughs> now, if the presence of a Latino sentient being who is completely dehumanized and exploited for his body aren't enough to shine a light on how this is a pretty straightforward allegory on the immigrant experience, let's consider the setting. The Cold War did provide the B-movie aesthetics that some of his critics of the film dismissed as an ode to classic Hollywood. You know what else the Cold War did? Tear the Latin American continent to shred via proxy wars financed by the US and Russia, the consequences of which we are still dealing with today. Not to mention that the late 50s are also fodder for another imaginary world, the one that gives conservatives a real hard-on. For those who want to make America great again, this is the time they long for. The time where a disabled woman is marginalized, a black woman is diminished, a scientist is seen as suspect, and a gay man must remain closeted and alone. And it's also a time where Latino creatures can be kept in the confines of an institution until death. In other words, the movie isn't simply mining the past to lavish the screen with hipster throwbacks. It's doing so to send an incredibly clear warning of what our future may look like if current trends hold. The aquapine is the instrument used to condemn the white supremacist nationalist peen portrayed by Michael Shannon's monstrous US agent. We are currently living under an administration whose leader began his campaign by warning white America over Latin American sexuality, are we not? We are rapists, criminals, and only sometimes good people. So forget the giggle-inducing idea of a woman getting freaky with free willy. The subversion here lies in her having a consensual and loving relationship with the much-feared Latino male. And I also have thoughts on the Latino male behind the movie, director Guillermo del Toro. 
Now, he may look like an adorable, overgrown hobbit. But when, it but when it comes to Hollywood, he should best be described as a unicorn. The number of Latino directors working at his level are so few that they were statistically insignificant in a demographic report on directors from 2007 to 2017. For a whole decade, there were so few Latino directors, their presence didn't even merit its own slice in a pie chart. And if you break it down by gender, it gets even worse, as it usually does. Only one Latina worked as a director during that time frame. We don't fare much better on screen than we do behind the camera. Despite being the largest minority group in the country and comprising 18% of the total population, we only had 3% of the speaking roles in the top movies of 2016. And to add insult to injury, we're actually the most frequent movie-going demographic in the country. Anyone who's ever flipped through a Spanish language channel can attest to the following. Latinos will watch any movie, regardless of its artistic achievement. It's the reason why white chicks holds legendary status in Latin America, why Jackie Chan is revered, and why there is a Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle on in a Latino household at any given moment. <laughs> to have one of our own make it is nothing short of miraculous. And that should be enough to pull at people's heartstrings, even without mentioning the constant attack of Latino communities in our current political state. ICE arrests have increased by 41% in one year. And within that 41%, arrests of non-criminal, undocumented immigrants have increased by 171%. The victory of a Mexican immigrant should have been celebrated as a big fuck you to Trump. But instead, it got dubbed as safe. And there's always some smug asshole who will pipe up and say, well, actually, Latinos are an ethnicity, not a race, and El Toro is a white Mexican ergo. Ergo what? First off, thanks for explaining the obvious to a Peruvian who's lived all over Latin America and has family members whose shades go from Hitler Youth to Wakanda citizen. <laughs> if we were south of the border, I would gladly rant about colorism, Eurocentrism, socioeconomic inequality, privilege, etc. at all. But we're not, and I have yet to encounter one Latino who hasn't had to claw their way out of some bigoted situation, regardless of their looks, background, or socioeconomic status. And it's a tactic that's often used every time a Latino rises to prominence. Emma Gonzalez is not brown enough because she lives in a hoity-toity Florida suburb. Gina Rodriguez is not Latina enough because she doesn't speak Spanish. Amara La Negra can't be placed anywhere because the idea of being black and Latina is too much for the binary framework under which so many people operate. So on and so forth. The dismissal of a Latino that doesn't fit within the feel-good narrative of our most Bernie bro sensibilities is a convenient tool. You can live in a perpetual state of liberal guilt by saying you want more Latinos in the media and then disregard their actual contributions without feeling like a traitor to the cause. It might not make you a peen, but it certainly makes you a dick. In short, there's a reason Del Toro's more impressive Pan's Labyrinth was relegated to Best Foreign Film despite being nominated in other categories in the 2006 Oscars. And it's not because he's too white for a Mexican. Look, maybe the Aquapine allegory got lost on the Academy voters and they only did reward the movie for its cinematography, its love story, and its obsession with movie-making magic. It wouldn't be the first time a Latin American artist hit their message with such finesse that the, that the powers of B thought of it as harmless. We are a region used to dealing with censors, oppression of freedom of expression, book bans, persecution, and more. So used to dealing with it that one of the most prolific genres in our canon in both literature and movies is precisely the allegory. 
As the post-colonial theorist Frederick Jameson explained in his essay on the subject, Latin America has a tradition of creating stories where the private individual destiny is always an allegory of the embattled situation of the public culture and society. Del Toro has spent his career criticizing systems of power through this way and their effects on the most oppressed, and in doing so, he inserts himself in a long-standing Latin American tradition. Perhaps asking the dinosaurs at the academy to understand his deeper meaning is too much. But I expected more from my younger peers who appear to be blind to subtle forms of resistance, even one as subtle as an aquapine hitting them in the face. <laughs> now this isn't to say The Shape of Water was in my view superior to my other two faves. It simply means that its place as a best picture win deserves more revolutionary credit than it's being given. At the end of the day, my need to argue this has less to do with its merit over one movie or the other, and more to do with an academy that is so closed off to real inclusion that we only get a tiny crumb to be divided among too many worthy contenders, leaving so many of us unsatisfied and too many of us feeling robbed. Thank you. Keep it going for Inez Molina. All right. Our last op-ed reader of the night is a musician and comedian who performs sometimes, not tonight, tonight? No, not tonight. Uh, as her vintage style alter ego, Plucky Rosenthal, who I'm told has an album dropping soon. Keep a lookout. Uh, she also teaches at the Old Town School of Folk Music. She's also the MC of CLAW, the Chicago League of Lady Arm Wrestlers. Please welcome Elisa Rosenthal. on social commentary. Thank you. This is Pizarro. Now I see. Okay. Hi, I'm Elisa Rosenthal. That was the theme to uh, the new Queer Eye reboot. <laughs> when I practiced in my apartment, it was really, really funny. So, um, all right. If, <laughs> if that song doesn't immediately ignite a sense of joy within you, what are you even doing with your life? Uh, hello, hennies. On February 7th, 2018, the most significant day of February 2018, without a doubt, Netflix dropped eight glorious new episodes of the reboot of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy! Yeah! Abbreviated to Queer Eye to be more inclusive, and hell yeah, 2018. I found out about it from the genius Netflix marketing campaign known as Five of My Friends Texting Me to See If I Had Seen the New Queer Eye Reboot Yet, and it's very effective marketing. The original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was on Bravo from 2003 to 2007, adding a little zhuzh to the hapless East Coast straight dudes of W-era America. 
The 2018 reboot puts the Fab Five in the very conservative bowels of Atlanta to make America fabulous again. <laughs> it might not be the show we deserve, but it's the show we need. Much as the original five, Carson Kressley, Ted Allen, Jay Rodriguez, Tom Something, and Kyan will always hold a special place in my heart. The reboot casting could not be more on point. It's five men who represent different and complex walks of gay life, and it's exciting to see more types of men represented in the media. I know. <laughs> it sounds sassy. The world probably doesn't need another man represented in anything for the rest of time. But there is significance to seeing more men who are gay and black, men who are gay and religious, and men who are wearing bandana headbands and army fatigue onesies. There's Bobby Burke, home redecorating specialist, here to have hard conversations with you about where homosexuality fits in with Christianity and clear all the shit out of your house while framing all the pictures of your loved ones you keep meaning to put up. Seriously, Bobby, please come to my apartment and do this. Can there be a queer eye for the Kinsey Scale 2 gal? <laughs> There's Tan France, fashion. His beautiful silver hair is as tall as how low his shirts are unbuttoned. <laughs> And he will make you want to wear all the prints and speak in a debatedly Liverpoolian accent. He's Pakistani, he's Muslim, he's married. He does the most amazing Miss India walk you will ever see. There's Anthony Porowski. Is anyone following him? Okay, okay, well, let me get you up to snuff. Uh, <laughs> I was like, this crowd definitely has already binged Queer Eye. <laughs> That's what this is written about. Okay. Um, Anthony Porowski, food and wine. He's currently the center of major internet conspiracies, wondering if he can even cook. Um, he's only ever been showed, like, preparing guacamole. Uh, he made a salad out of grapefruit. Um, he made sangria. That's, like, about it. Um, it is, yeah. <laughs> and he's today uh, the subject of a New York Times article that came out called Anthony Porowski Can Cook. <laughs> he's great at holding avocados and space for fragile men. There's Karamo Brown, culture, which is definitely a thing. He was on The Real World, so. And he has the best chiseled facial hair I've ever seen. He can have the tough conversations about being a man who's black and gay, including the crux of the entire series, which puts him in a car with a man who's a southern white cop. It's really good TV. Um, and last, but certainly not least, there's Jonathan Van Ness, who lives his life in capital letters. Yes. When a friend asked me who my favorite one on Queer Eye was, I responded, you know, the one with the beard, who's a bit much, but I'm into it. <laughs> you might know JVN from his Funny or Die show, Gay of Thrones in which he recaps Game of Thrones episodes while doing people's hair. Uh, he's in charge of grooming, and I love him for his embracing of body hair and also referring to all people and inanimate objects as she. This show, I don't know how they do it. The combination of pathos and ethos and eros makes for the most goddamn delightful 45-minute experience you can have. It's five fantastic TV personalities doing emotional labor for men barely hanging on to the confines of masculinity with deeply effective producing decisions where they can, like, box out their feelings or be firemen dancing for charity. I would realize around minute 30 in every episode that I had a huge, doofy grin on my face. I never knew I could smile so large while sobbing so hard at the same time. <laughs> I swear I don't work for Netflix, watch it or don't, I don't care. But this is, I had a big experience. Um, this show makes me want to be a better man. <laughs> it's not like 
It's, it's, this is the part I should have edited out. It's kind of like what I wish the Will and Grace reboot was like, which I watched. I'm sorry, I didn't want to admit that in Logan Square, but I watched it. Um, it's, it feels like we went back in time and all our old friends are there, but somehow with Queer Eye, it's updated for what today is actually like. Um, Will and Grace makes me feel like, okay, these actors don't age, but how are sitcoms still around? I don't know. Okay, back to Queer Eye. I only have one qualm with an otherwise flawless franchise. There is an inherent misogyny to it. It's only for men. The original series has a short-lived spinoff that I never saw called Queer Eye for the Straight Girl. I don't remember this at all. Um, It ran for maybe like five months. Um, I do truly believe the world would be a truly better place the more men just get better. Uh, But it's interesting to grapple with why this show feels good and why it's successful. Why is it... What is it that feels safer to produce and develop shows about men than it is to put energy towards women in a way that isn't pandering? Any sort of eye for any sort of gal would be valuable. They could, like, teach you how to fix your bike or put on black liquid eyeliner or, like, draft that text back to him. I don't know. I would watch the shit out of that show. (laughs) Teach me how to do any of those things. Uh... Oh, there we go. This show got me to finish... Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. But the show takes the angle of making these men better, usually for the sake of the women in their lives, which has it passing a sort of alternate universe uh, reverse Bechdel test, in a way. Um, You can go into the kitchen and make a meal. You can put a little effort into your appearance. You can have the hard conversations with the women in your family that will make your life more fulfilling and richer. This show got me to finish some home improvement projects I've been putting off and care a little more about making sure, I don't know, my nails look nice and my outfits are thought out. I pitted an avocado with confidence. Thank you, Antony. Um, I kind of want to buy a water pick, though I suspect that one was purely product placement and they didn't actually give a shit if AJ flossed or not. If you start watching this show, you too might find yourself wanting to care for yourself a little more, and you'll have five brand new people you'll have to follow on Instagram because goddamn are these modern day celebrities good at what they do. Uh, please, eight episodes weren't nearly enough, and I need another, another season like stat. Please come to Chicago Fab Five. We'll welcome you with open arms, and we can drink the alcoholic sangria together you definitely accidentally served to children in the Bobby Camp episode. <laughs> Then we'll, it's been bothering me this whole time. <laughs> then we'll drive off into the sunset in our black SUV together to hang out in our Fab Five loft that we just always are in all the time. Amongst the exposed brick and monochromed outfits, cuddled up in front of our one big TV, cheering on the men in our lives. They didn't think they could like a gay guy so much, and we didn't think we could like a conservative southern, great my, guy, a southern straight guy as much either. And here we all are. America. Thank you. Oh, keep it going for Elisa Rosenthal. Thank you. Oh, gosh. And thank you to all our great op-ed readers tonight. Come on. Another one. If you're like, those people were so good. I love their writing and performances. If only there was some way I could repay them. Well, I see right with my little eye. A, a, a plastic bucket that says tips. I, I can't read it. I, it probably says something to the, to the effect of tips for performers, because that's what it is. You put money in there. Uh, we're going to split that evenly between all the delightful people you see up here on this stage tonight. So if you think they're good and you're like, art is worth paying for, 
you can do it. But if like you don't have cash, like that's fine too. You don't have to. It's all, it's technically free. Yeah. Yeah, that I'll do. Um, before we get on to the debate, the final portion of the evening, I would like to call back to the stage for the final time, Kevin Johnson with the Fake News Quiz. So apparently the dildo I mentioned earlier is actually Latino, not just an aqua pee. I need everyone to know that. We are woke now. All right. I just need one last volunteer. Who, who the fuck is Austin? Austin. You, you have been voluntold. Works, right? Yeah. Alright, cool. Yeah. Alright, let's get it started. Story one. Four college students successfully trade their nudes for a puppy. That happens. <laughs> okay, sure. Story two. Quincy Jones says the Beatles were the worst musicians in the world. Migos. <laughs> you say amigos? Yeah. Yeah. How many, how many times are you going to say Whatever. Whatever, yeah. Story three. Chinese hacker group gives FCC chairman Ajit Pai award for internet freedom. Which I must, I, I guess, is in jest. Because fuck him. What do you believe? I believe the puppy one. Oh, okay. And I think I believe the hacker one. So the second one was... We were eight years in power. No, uh-uh. Um, uh, um. Chinese hacker... No, 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 no. The NRA actually gave him the Charleston Heston Award for Courage Under Fire. Which is... Yes, it is... He couldn't accept it because it's like... A, they, they, like, physically make him a gun as the award. And he, could, he couldn't accept it, though, because it's some weird fucking ethics thing. Like, we still have that the fucking government. Whatever. All right, all right. We're going to go to the second step. Story one. Barbara Streisand reveals she cloned her dog. <laughs> Story two. Rhode Island bill would charge $20 to unblock internet porn. I kind of believe that. I wonder if it's like every time. <laughs> right? I don't know. Whatever. Story three. A Brazilian gang held nurses hostage after they claimed, or after they claimed vaccinations in Rio cause disabilities. Yes. Have you been to the favelas recently? Yeah, yeah. I just got back. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'm going to go with, I don't think you can clone a dog yet. I don't think we're that far, so I don't, I don't know about that one. That's, that's your choice? Yeah. Okay. Um, they actually made two dogs. <laughs> one's like Miss Scarlet and one the other one's like Miss Violet. Because they're like, you know, they look very similar being clones. Uh, it's just what she named them after what she puts them in. Uh, actually, the Brazilian gang knows that vaccines vaccines do not cause bullshit. Is that just us then? Yeah, that's. I guess that's just us. They held they held nurses hostage so they could vaccinate against uh, fucking. I, I forget what the fuck it was, but oh, against so the shit. They made. I didn't write it down. They made the vaccinations. 
Yeah, they made them give vaccinations. Okay. They were like, we're like, we're good to the people. You know, it's like Can some fucking Robin Hood. Here? No. <laughs> no. As as we have heard, they they don't want Brazilians in the country, so it probably wouldn't work out. It's unfortunate, really. It really is. Uh, okay. Third set of stories. Uh, to apparently uh, continue fueling conspiracy theories, Madame Tussauds Wax Museum released a sculpture of Elvis with a beating heart and a warm torso. Is that fucking weird? Yeah, I don't see why not. I, I believe that. That seems fun. Yeah, seems like some, I, don't, I don't know what white people do. I don't know. That's probably it. Story two. A married father defends his sex robot as part of the family. Yeah, I, I think I believe that one too. Like, regardless of if that's true, that's gonna happen in the future so much. It's my sex box and her name is Sony. Anyway, story three. Texas man who wanted to join ISIS sent the terror group his resume and cover letter. I believe all of those things. Um, That's weird. They're all true. No, no, they're not. They're not all true. Okay. Um, let's go with the sex robot one. No, that happened. Oh. Please. Oh, my God. All right. No, please. Oh, no, no, no. Defend that sex robot with your life. Um... The, the fake one is uh, Madame Tussauds. There is a beating heart and a warm torso in, in uh, one of these statues, but it's actually uh, Tom Hardy for some weird fucking reason. Like, why did you do that with fucking, like, Bane? I, I don't fucking know. But thank you for coming up here. Get yourself one of these skewer stickers. You done did it. He's going to welcome back Tom to get this debate started. Thank you, Kevin! Legit, when you said Tom Hardy just now, my mind thought Ed Hardy, and I'm like, what? (laughs) Excuse me? Uh, Anyway. Uh, So, to finish out the night, we're going to have the skewer debate, where we're going to have two writers come up to the stage. They're going to debate. Uh, topics that they have been assigned beforehand, and you, the audience, are going to decide who is the winner. So let me go ahead and introduce the debaters. First, we have a freelance film and theater producer and staff writer on award-winning serial fiction podcast, Pleasure Town, and content producer slash editor for the gaming podcast, Tabletop Potluck. Please welcome Ray Goldberg. Next up on the debate stage is a published author, web developer, educator, and social media guru. Guru, his word, not mine. (laughs) He, too, is a content producer on the gaming podcast, Tabletop Potluck. Please welcome Noah Heinrich. So what are these fine folks going to be debating? Well, let me go ahead and tell you. This month, the Winter Olympics occurred. You may recall those. And the Winter Olympic is a bunch of fine sports that we all love. We all love to see the sports. But I felt, I felt that the Winter Olympics, the, 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 the lineup of sports, didn't fully encapsulate what it means to live in the winter, especially for those of us in Chicago. So the question I ask you two is, what sport should the Olympic Committee add to the next Winter Olympics? Ray, what are you arguing for? 
cross-country debate, uh, bleh, no, what was I arguing again? Cross-country threatening to move. <laughs> Noah. Competitive plan canceling. <laughs> Delightful. So the way the debate works, you're both going to give your opening statements. I will come back on stage with a list of questions. I'm going to ask them to you, and you have to come up with answers on the spot. You will then give your closing statements, and the audience will determine a winner. Who wishes to go first? Yeah, I'm going first. The whole point of the Olympic Games is for countries all around the world to come together and proudly showcase their finest athletes by rubbing their athletes and all the other athletes' smug faces. <laughs> If we all want to give Chicagoans a leg up on our international competition, the choice is clear. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but the worst part of Chicago winters isn't just the cold. Other places on Earth, even elsewhere in the country, have it way worse when you go by precipitation and temperatures, but no, the worst part of Chicago winters is that they're sneaky assholes. <laughs> Sometimes winter comes as early as October. Just as you were really enjoying the fall, winter comes up and clotheslines fall in the face. But even more insidious is when October is still just a lovely fall and so is November and so is December. And oh God, it's Hitchcock and Wes Craven and George Romero all rolled into one. You know, winter's lurking around a corner, but where and when will it strike? And then the weather inevitably drops the base and suddenly it's the North Pole out there. Did you know that Chicago was colder than the North Pole this winter? It was just for one day, but that is one day too many. It's freezing and it's wet and it's miserable, but then look, the sun is out and it's 40 degrees. Birds are chirping, children are playing, maybe spring is here. But then the bass drops again, and this happens 80 more times. Nature itself is playing cat and mouse with us, and we can't fight back, but we can cope. The beauty of complaining about something, anything, is that you get that juicy emotional catharsis, but then you can keep on doing what you were doing. <laughs> and the weather is a complaint that brings us all closer together. I work as a barista, so a good 65% of my job is small talk. The usual caricature of small talk is, nice weather we're having, huh? Not in Chicago. <laughs> in Chicago, it's, ugh, is it snowing again? Or is it rain? I think it's changing every other minute. I brought an umbrella, but my hand is permanently frozen to the handle, and now I'm a Spider-Man villain. <laughs> but hey, we still sneak in some kernels of optimism. We like to cap off our complaints with, I heard it's supposed to be in the 50s next week. <laughs> is it? We don't know. <laughs> Is it for good luck, like saying it will make it happen? Is it just false hope to keep ourselves and each other sane? We don't know. The other source of optimism is people telling you about all the other places they've just been or could go to, like they're from SoCal and every winter growing up their parents would take them to the beach and it feels like a distant dream now. Or, hey, they just went to Tampa and it was in the 60s all week and you could really get used to that. <laughs> or, heck, even Minneapolis is colder, but at least it had the mercy to build an indoor skyway system spanning over 80 square blocks across downtown. You've all heard plenty more options, I'm sure, so you're well on your way to being a champ at threatening to move. <laughs> 
Now you're probably saying to yourselves, if this is an Olympic game, how do I win? <laughs> well, the runner is the most credible threat. You can't just say, well, Duran, I wish I was in Atlanta. You need to plan an escape route. <laughs> I should move to sunny Atlanta. I should get a studio in Underwood Hills and get a job at William Street and work on Adult Swim. I'm plenty qualified. I can make poop jokes. I know what the kids are into. <laughs> Sweet podcast listeners in the future, let the record show that I just dabbed, which I pray is only ever as dated as it was tonight. <laughs> Cross-country threatening to move will award points based on how intricate yet totally feasible your plan is, but much like curling, don't overshoot your mark. Don't actually move. If you move, you're a coward. If you move, sorry, you're spending winter in hell's frozen over armpit with the rest of us, buddy. We're proposing, if we're proposing a new game to the Olympic Committee, we need to make sure it's something we've got in the bag. Competitive plan canceling is a crapshoot. Bailing on social obligations isn't a Chicago-specific tradition. Any Yahoo with enough existential dread can do that. We've got to make sure whatever we suggest is an even enough playing field that the other countries buy into it, but we're still the best. Besides, the goal here is to show athleticism. Canceling plans is the depth of non-athleticism. How often do you cancel plans so you can do something else instead versus... How often do you cancel plans so you can go do nothing? <laughs> That's what I thought. Threatening to move, that requires some major mental gymnastics. When you're lying to your loved ones to avoid them, that's tough, but think of all the logical hurdles you have to vault over to lie to yourself. <laughs> Besides, plan canceling isn't only a winter sport. We've all weaseled out of our neighbor's barbecues. I rest my case. The most heartwarming part, though, of cross-country threatening to move is ultimately the not moving part. Even though we bellyache about how bad the winters get, even though we have other options, most of us would never move. We're complaining to keep ourselves and others alive so we can get back to living in our super weird kick-ass city. Where else will people throw a fit over what condiments you can and can't put on a hot dog? <laughs> Where else will people dye the river green, giving you an added incentive to not ever touch it? <laughs> Where else will people passive-aggressively call dibs on parking spots with lawn chairs? Which, by the way, would be fantastic to see in the Winter Olympics if we weren't, like, going to demolish the competition. <laughs> but we've got threatening on move unlock. We've got threatening to move unlocked too. So let's go show the world what we're made of. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. That was very informative. Allow me to retort. <laughs> Please. Okay, the microphone stand has refrained from attacking me, so I'm ready to go. Oh, Tom's performing some diagnostics. <laughs> All right. So, I would like to humbly submit a new winter sporting event to the International Olympic Committee, one that I feel has been unfairly overlooked for many, many years. There exists no other winter sport that demands this particular blend of creativity, bravery, and a willingness to trample on the feelings of others. <laughs> I am speaking, of course, about competitive plan canceling. No other sport truly exemplifies the true horror and despair of winter. And I think it is a travesty 
that it has been excluded from the Olympics for so long. Now I'm seeing a little, few looks of confusion from the audience. You're probably wondering how competitive plan canceling is played. Luckily for you, you're talking to an old pro. <laughs> I might not be the Michael Jordan of plan canceling, but I like to think I'm at least the Dennis Rodman. <laughs> competitive plan canceling, or for us in the know, CPC, is like a combination of figure skating and slam poetry. <laughs> the, the plan canceler, or Plansler gets up on stage, usually dressed in a patriotic bathrobe, onesie, or occasional snuggie, and cancels a plan live with, on the phone with an actual person on the other end of the line. Your routine is then judged in three categories. Plausibility, boldness, and originality. So let's go through those one by one. So number one, your excuse has to be believable. That might seem obvious, but you have to watch out. Not only does it have to be believable to the average person, you are also required to submit every excuse you have used for this particular contact over your entire relationship to the judges. If you've already used the old, my roommate stole a baby eagle and is now being attacked by its mother excuse, the judges will know and dock you points. This is one of the ways that CPC really stands out among most sporting events, because you're playing a long game, one that can stretch back for decades. Number two, boldness. This is a balance of the importance of the event you're canceling, the strength of your excuse, and the severity of the weather. If you want to be safe, canceling coffee with your cousin's best friend who needs an introduction at your tech startup during a snowstorm is fine. But if you really want to climb to the upper echelons of the sport, you need to step it up. I'm talking dropping out of your sister's baby shower while it's a balmy 41 degrees outside. <laughs> what you're trying to show is how far you'll go to put your own comfort and self-care over the wants and expectations of your loved ones. <laughs> Number three, originality. Like I said before, in this game you have to keep your personal history in mind. Repeating excuses are a great way to earn a bronze at best. But that's not enough. You have to consider the entire history of the sport stretching back to ancient Greece. <laughs> the judges panel will include some of the world's foremost scholars on the shirking arts. So they know all the old classics, especially the one that says, oh, I'm sorry, I can't attend this wrestling match. I just drank hemlock. <laughs> Fun fact, when I was thinking of that, I thought, Socrates joke, too soon? <laughs> God damn it. So if you really want to get points, you need to come up with something completely new or at least get an original spin on an old classic. So now, why should we push CPC to the Olympics? Because America would be good at it. Nay, we would dominate it. Our country is built on canceled plans. We planned to create a country where all men were created equal. And then we saw slavery and thought, nah. We planned to respect the territorial rights and lives of Native Americans. We planned that in writing. And then we canceled. And going back to something more current, our current president, you know, he couldn't keep an engagement if he had it locked in a solid gold safe. You know, just going back to the whole gun control thing, he planned to be a Second Amendment proponent and then just said, hey, 
Not only should we take away the guns, we should also do it without respecting due process. <laughs> that is a supreme plan canceler right there. And of course, Chicagoans in particular would be perfect for this sport. You're talking to the state that planned to have a budget for two consecutive years and kept canceling it. Two years! So I have a question for you all. When was the last time you really rooted for America at the Olympics? Have we won a medal in any sport that you really think speaks to the American experience? If we get competitive plan canceling on the docket, not only will we win a ton of medals, we'll win medals that we feel really good about because it's our national sport. My opponent argues that threatening to move is the better option. But here's a little bit of a truth bomb. Everywhere sucks. Nobody is happy. It's not a particularly American thing to hate where you live, especially when the weather is shitty. Everybody wants to leave. Nobody is happy anywhere. CPC is where it's at. Because while our colors don't run, they can certainly flake. Uh, thank you to both our debaters for those delightful opening statements. Thank you. All right, now I'm going to ask you questions, and you're going to have to answer, even if you don't know a good joke to say. <laughs> the pressure is part of the game. Ray, the first question goes to you. All sports need confusing penalties. I was pleased to see that you already mentioned in your opener that for threatening to move, actually moving is disqualifying. Uh, but what are some other things that would be fouls or penalties in uh, cross-country threatening to move? So I feel like right off the bat, uh, threatening to move back to your hometown. <laughs> let's, let's assume you're not a native Chicagoan. If you're just like, I'm just going to throw in the towel and move back to Kansas. You could do that whenever you want to. You're just using this as an excuse. So that's the big one. Arguably, that's even bigger than actually moving, because that's just, oh, buddy, I'm sorry. <laughs> well put. Noah, question for you. Uh, notwithstanding you know, the questions of gender politics, is it right to do this? But the fact is, the Olympic Committee splits sports into men and women's versions. What are going to be the major difference in differences between men's and women's competitive plan canceling? That is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't believe in binary genders, so this is a toughie for me. <laughs> well, oh, I'm genuinely stumped by this one. <laughs> well, generally speaking, I think that the women's category will have much better outfits. <laughs> because generally speaking, when you're a guy or assigned male at birth, when you're staying home alone and you are just trying to be comfortable, it's either jeans and a t-shirt or just a t-shirt or you're naked and there's not really much in between. <laughs> women, on the other hand, really know how to buy products that make them feel good about themselves, make them feel comfortable. We're talking microfibers, we're talking fleece. So generally speaking, it's going to be a lot more pleasant to look at because they're just much better outfits. And I get to speak from experience that for men, uh, we, we tend to pick an outfit and just run it to the ground. <laughs> 
Ray, a question for you. And <laughs> Soundtrack now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, luckily, uh, we're nearly done. Ray, any amateur can threaten to move when it's cold out, but what are some reasons to threaten to move that only a pro move threatener can capitalize on? Well, the one jumping to mind fastest is the Air and Water Show. <laughs> has, has anyone ever attended the Air and Water Show, or do you just walk outside and go, oh, there it is! God damn it! It's happening again! And I, I never know when it's happening until it's happening, so I think it's the end of the world. But no, we did this on purpose. So that's, that's definitely one of them. Um... There's gotta be another another solid summer one. Uh, people who hate fun probably like the taste. I re I really like the taste, but you know, there's some people who are like, God damn it, people lining up to eat food that they could have gotten from that restaurant any other time of the year, but now eighty of them are doing it in front of me. God damn it. So yeah, we've got our we got our pick. Well said, Noah. Uh, I got two questions I can ask you. I got to pick the better one. I'm gonna go with this one. So, some sports, like uh, let's say skiing, uh, they just get a ton of different specific events. Like skiing gets slalom, downhill, ski jump. It goes on and on. What are some specific subsets of plan canceling that you think should get their own events? Absolutely. So generally speaking, the sport is divided by the category of the person that you are canceling plans with. So there is competitive family plan canceling. There is competitive coworker plan canceling. There's competitive friend plan canceling. There's even competitive pet plan canceling. So there really are infinite varieties of how, who you can really just say, you know what, nah, I'm just going to stay home with my laptop and my gin. <laughs> so, sm yeah. Smaller sub-question for you, Noah. What's pet plan canceling? <laughs> it's when you know that your dog hasn't been walked for a while, and he's, like, you know, you know, running around the house, very, very hyperactive, and you know he has to go to the bathroom, but you think, I could get up, put on clothes, put, uh, put a leash on him, get a poop bag, take him out around the block. That would be a good thing to do. Or I could just pollute him into the backyard. Yeah, that'll do it. Oh, man. <laughs> you, yeah, and you'd need a stone heart to do that, so you would need the best of the best. I love it. Good answer. And one final question that I want you both to answer. Whoever wants to go up first, just go ahead and do it. Um, I wrote, and you both agreed in your pieces, that obviously the USA would dominate at both of these events. But I want to know... Who would be our top competitor and why? I think our top competitor in competitive plan canceling would be our friendly neighbors to the North Canada. Because the Canadians have a unique advantage over almost every other country on Earth. Which is that they can cancel a plan on you and make it feel like it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> they are just so apologetic so sincere, you just can't help but apologize right back at them and just feel like you're the asshole for trying to get them out of bed in the first place. And that is a very, very sharp edge that the Canadians have over this, as they do in most winter sports. 
So if we're taking cross-country threatening to move as being literally cross-country, be like Canada and especially Russia would be strong competitors just for sheer landmass and opportunities. Especially, uh, the Russians could really get us with, yeah, well, I'm cross-country planning to move to fucking Asia. It's still the same country, and here's all the fun things I'm going to do in Asia, but also Russia. So they've got, man, they've got a bunch of plants that they could pull out. They would name places that we don't even know exist. You'd be like, that's probably in Russia. I think that concludes the question and answers segment. You both did it wonderfully. Time now comes for closing statements. Uh, Ray, you went first in the beginning. I don't know if that means you go first or second now. No, I go first. All right, listen. I know canceling plans isn't a perfect sport. We've had our share of controversies, like the time we canceled tournaments for 20 years over the debate over whether someone could win the competition by never showing up in the first place. (laughs) But I want you to know that I believe, from the bottom of my heart, that it is a much better representation of Chicago winter than threatening to move away. For almost half the year, our city becomes a frozen, windy hellscape, like a Hieronymus Bosch painting that's been dipped in liquid nitrogen. (laughs) But there isn't any place in this country or any other that doesn't have its share of problems. California is expensive and also on fire. (laughs) Hawaii is a colonial outpost that was stolen from its rightful rulers, and Florida is, well, it's Florida. (laughs) The point is, every place sucks. But when you think about plan canceling, uh, but now I want you to think about plan canceling again, an exciting, unique Chicagoan event. The other guy pulls a knife, you order Thai food from Grubhub. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you make plans to bring flowers, but binge the new season of Voltron instead. That's the Chicago way, and that's how you win gold at the Olympics. Thank you. While we're here to argue about how to craft an Olympic sport that will best reflect the Chicago experience, we have to remember that our athletes will be representing the entire United States of America. Do we really want to stand on that podium and pat ourselves on the back for being the best at bailing? Or do we want to show the world how many cool places we can threaten to move to in this country alone? (laughs) It'll majorly jumpstart tourism both domestically and internationally. Besides, whether they know it or not, Americans have been training for this sport for years. Raise your hand if you, seriously or otherwise, threatened to flee America if Trump was elected. (laughs) Seriously, raise your hands. Did you do it? (laughs) (laughs) See, you're all... You're all shoo-ins for Team America. Now let's go for the gold. Wonderful performances all around, but I'm afraid only one of you can bring home this delightful skewer trophy. It's beautiful and it's sharp. Don't hurt anybody with it. Uh, we're going to need a judge to impartially uh, determine the volume of the crowd noise. You, sir, you're closer to the front. Would you mind? He, he shrugged non-committally. Cool. Thank you so much. So, if you believe that the winner of this debate arguing for competitive plan canceling is Noah Heinrich, please applaud now. Woo!
If you believe that the winner of this debate arguing for cross-country threatening to move was Ray Goldberg, applause now. A judge. Who is the winner? Ray Goldberg. Congratulations. And congratulations. Really for America. Congratulations. You were both. You were both fucking hilarious. Thank you so much for being on the show. And yo, that's it. That skewer's over. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I've been Tom Harrison. We are going to be back here at Cafe Mustache, I think on that side again, uh, next month, uh, April, what? April 4th? You sure it's not 7th? <laughs> yeah, it's April 4th. Yeah, I was wrong, it's April 4th. We'll be back here on Wednesday, April 4th at 8 p.m. Uh, to do just another one of these, but even more in the future. I, I was like, I'm probably gonna know what to say at the end of this sentence. Oh, well. Um, thank you all for coming. Thank you for Cafe Mustache for uh, hosting us again. This is also a podcast. You can get wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to donate to the writers, you can do that. Anyway, thank you and good night. Thank you for listening to the Skewer Podcast. Uh, if you liked what you heard, you can always come to a live show the first Wednesday of every month at Cafe Mustache in Chicago. Uh, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts uh, or give us a review. It's all good. Um, so until next time, uh, thank you for listening and see ya.